Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lee Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Nationally representative surveys of American and Canadian adults have found that about one in five people say they've been in a sexually open relationship at some point in their lives. And an even larger number have expressed interest in this relationship style. This raises the question of who's into consensual non-monogamy? Are there any psychological factors related to people's interest? That's one of the topics we're going to be exploring in today's episode. Specifically, we're going to look at how different attachment styles are related to people's interest in and experiences with consensual non-monogamy. We're also going to explore the roots of the stigma against sexually open relationships and some of the reasons why a lot of people who are interested in this relationship style never pursue it. In addition, we're going to explore the effects of this stigma, how things are changing in terms of people's attitudes, as well as resources for those interested in exploring some type of consensual non-monogamy. For today's episode, I am joined once again by Dr. Amy Morris, an assistant professor of psychology at Chapman University. Her research focuses on sexuality, consensually non-monogamous relationships, and LGBTQ issues. Amy has published more than 55 journal articles and book chapters, and she has received several awards for her pioneering research on polyamory. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Are you in a polyamorous relationship? Researchers at Ball State University are currently recruiting polyamorous individuals for a study of relationships. In order to participate, you need to be 18 years of age or older, identify as polyamorous, and currently be involved in at least one polyamorous relationship. If you agree to participate, you will be asked to complete a survey about your relationship beliefs and experiences. This survey takes no more than 45 minutes, and you will have an equal opportunity to receive one of 40 $25 gift cards for your voluntary participation. If you meet the criteria and are interested in participating, you can find the link in the show notes or visit bit.ly slash polyamstudy. That's bit.ly slash polyamstudy. Thank you for contributing to Sex and Relationship Science. Okay, Amy, in our previous conversation, we talked all about common things people get wrong regarding consensual non-monogamy. One other misconception I wanted to ask you about is how people see the link between attachment style and consensual non-monogamy. I think many people assume that open relationships are for avoidantly attached people, you know, people who don't want to get too close to any one person. And so it's a way of sort of keeping some emotional distance. Now, you've conducted some research that can speak to this. So what did you find with respect to attachment avoidance? Yeah. So a few years ago, I asked a whole lot of people, I think over 1,700 people, to tell me about their attachment orientation, the extent to which they wanted to keep distance from partners, so avoidance, and the extent to which they really wanted to be emotionally close and they worried their partner was going to leave them, which would be indicative of anxious attachment. And we found that people who scored high on avoidance 
also were really likely to want to try out non-monogamy. They were willing and willing at a very high degree. So they were statements like you and your partner would go to a swingers club together, or you and your partner would take a third on on equal terms, and you and your partner this, any types of non-monogamy iterations, people who were high in avoidance were like, yes, I want to try this. This sounds so interesting. I'm really interested and I have high desire. And then people who were anxious were kind of all over the place. So the results were not predictive. So people with anxiety were not necessarily interested in non-monogamy. But it was all people who had never engaged in consensual non-monogamy. So people with high avoidance, they really want to try it. But when we actually ask people in consensually non-monogamous relationships to tell us about their attachment style, we found that people with very low levels of avoidance were more likely to be in consensually non-monogamous relationships than monogamous relationships. So on one hand, avoidance, there's like this allure, oh, non-monogamy sounds great. But in practicality, and when people are actually practicing non-monogamy, it's kind of uncommon to find people who are high in avoidance. So why do you think that is? Do you think maybe they try it out and it doesn't work for them, doesn't hold the allure? Because, you know, if you're talking about something like polyamory specifically, that's a lot more emotional labor and connection in a lot of ways compared to a monogamous relationship. And so part of it might just be the idea of it that you have in your head versus the reality of actually trying it turns out to be quite different. What do you think? I think also our attachment styles are malleable. So, you know, what you're talking about on one hand, someone could try it and they're like, oh my gosh, this is actually a lot of work. I I can't be emotionally distant. Or even if someone is just swinging and they're high in avoidance, you still have to talk about your insecurities or, you know, talk about boundaries or how a whole sex scenario went with your partner and be vulnerable. And maybe that is uncomfortable for people who are high in avoidance. And then the other plausible outcome is maybe our attachment styles are just malleable and they change over the life course. And we know that they do. Um, Many researchers, notably one of my good friends, Bill Chopik, has found that our attachment styles change over the life course. And so perhaps someone could be high in avoidance. And let's say in this scenario, they're opening up their relationship with their partner. And now they're practicing non-monogamy, you name it, open relationship, poly, swinging, doesn't matter. They have to sit and have more conversations with their partner about their relationship and relationship to IV things and talk about these different aspects of trust and quality and jealousy. And maybe that makes people become less avoidant over time. Yeah, and that's an interesting point. (laughs) A couple of things there. One is that, yes, there is so much communication that has to happen in any type of consensually non-monogamous relationship. And, you know, my first exposure to this was several years ago. I was uh, attending an academic conference and one of my friends who was at that conference was polyamorous. And when they arrived, they couldn't come and meet us in the bar for quite a while because they had to call every single one of their partners and check in with them and let them know that they got there all right. And so, you know, that just kind of speaks to the higher level of communication that is required. And so for some people who might be avoidantly attached, they might get into it and start realizing that and then back away from it. But for others, if you sort of practice that and get used to it, that might reduce some of those avoidant tendencies. I think something I'd be curious about is kind of 
individual variability or fluidity in attachment style, if you will. And I think for some people, it tends to be more malleable and can change faster, whereas for others, it's very, very slow to change. And so I suspect that that could be one of the factors that's important here is kind of the degree to which your attachment style is malleable for you. Yeah, yeah. And that's really interesting to think about too, or how it might even be malleable with different partners, um, because you have a different set of agreements or type of relationship with them. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about attachment anxiety a little bit more. So you mentioned that anxious people, that wasn't as strongly related to interest in consensual non-monogamy. I think that's interesting to explore. Like when would an anxious person be drawn to consensual non-monogamy versus not, you know? So on the one hand, you might predict that anxious people would be less open to the idea because if their partner has other partners, then they might worry about being abandoned. But on the other hand, having multiple partners herself creates more opportunities to have your needs met. And it might also provide some level of security in the sense that if one relationship ends, it won't be the end of the world. You've because, got another. <laughs> yes, you've got others. <laughs> so what do we know about attachment anxiety and consensual non-monogamy? Yeah. And so what you were just articulating is exactly what I was thinking about anxiety too. Like it could be really threatening on one hand and overwhelming that your partner's going to leave you. But then on the other hand, people who are anxious, they're really good at sensing other people's needs and they're really attuned to their partners. And sometimes they might come off as over responsive and like really needing a lot of attention because there's lots of worry that their partner's going to leave them. And so non-monogamy could be a really good fit. My research and other people's research who have subsequently looked at, is there a relationship between anxious attachment and consensual non-monogamy? The results are just kind of mixed. I consistently find that desire, so just trying out non-monogamy is unrelated to anxious attachment. And then I also find that among people in consensually non-monogamous relationships, that they have lower anxiety when we compare it to a larger sample of people who practice monogamy. So something might be happening similar to avoidance where maybe people who are secure, which would be indicative of low avoidance and low anxiety, maybe they're more likely to engage in consensual non-monogamy, or maybe both of these aspects of insecurity are malleable once people try out or engage in consensually non-monogamous relationships. Yeah, I think it's so interesting to talk about attachment style and relationship style and the intersection between them. And it reminds me of a previous project I did. I never got around to publishing it, but I presented it at a conference. And it looked at attachment style in relation to whether people were in monogamous or consensually non-monogamous relationships. And what I found was that people who were more anxiously attached were just less happy no matter what kind of relationship they were in. To me, that was interesting because, you know, I had heard arguments before that monogamy might be better for people who are anxiously attached because, you know, maybe they don't need to worry as much about perceived threats to the relationship. But, you know, just on average, anxious people, I think, tend to struggle more in any kind of relationship. And it's all about having a partner or partners who can meet your needs. And to the extent that those needs are met, then that anxiety might become malleable and might start to reduce over time. Now, some research finds that people who practice hierarchical polyamory, that is people who have a primary partner or home base, 
tend to have more insecure attachment than people who practice non-hierarchical polyamory. In other words, people who do not consider one of their partners to be primary. So I wanted to ask for your thoughts on this because this had me wondering about whether this finding is due to people with different attachment styles being drawn to different forms of polyamory or whether the structure of a polyamorous relationship itself impacts people's attachment style. I don't know. What do you think? Maybe it's a bit of both. Yeah, this finding really surprised me. I didn't necessarily expect that if someone had a hierarchy, meaning maybe they live with that person or they just note that person is more enmeshed, maybe financially or maybe more emotionally connected to that person, would really play a part in having lower attachment security and then also lower relationship satisfaction, we found, compared to people who don't practice hierarchy. So those are people who are considering each of the partners that they have as kind of an equal standing, equally emotionally committed I think what you're saying is true. It could be a mix of both. This is something that I'd really want to do some follow-up research on because I'm not quite sure what's going on here. Yeah, my initial hypothesis would sort of be that maybe the main driver of it is that maybe people who have more attachment insecurity to begin with are drawn to the idea of having one partner who's more of a secure base them. And so they invest more in that relationship compared to the others. Could be wrong about that, but that would kind of be my hypothesis there. I also think it's interesting to note that in some of my other research on polyamorous relationships, that we find that for people who are in non-hierarchical relationships, they still have one partner who seems kind of primary in the sense that they've been with that person the longest, they're the most likely to live with that person, have more shared things with that person, like joint finances and so forth. And so part of (laughs) my take on non-hierarchical polyamory is that it's often more about what you say your values are as opposed to, you know, the structure of each relationship, because it's kind of impossible to make each relationship equal in every metric, right? Because they're going to start at different times. Logistically, it's harder to share certain things like a legal marriage and all the benefits that come along with that with more than one partner. So, you know, non hierarchical polyamory doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is equal in every way, but it's more about your values and the way you treat them. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I always thought that maybe the underlying difference was the time with the partner, because sometimes by default, even if people are trying for equitable relationships and non-hierarchical relationships, they've just been with someone longer and they might be married to them or they might have kids with them and like... Love can be infinite, but time isn't. And so maybe they've just spent longer time. And that could be the underlying driver where some of these people who were practicing non-hierarchical polyamory, they had been with their partners for similar lengths of time. So that could be a part of it that then you can feel maybe secure or similar in security with your partners if they're kind of starting in similar times or you're you're investing the same amount of time or have been with a person for a similar length. Oh, and that just points to the need for more longitudinal research on polyamorous relationships because I suspect there's probably a big difference in the way people are practicing hierarchical versus non-hierarchical poly depending on whether this was something that they started practicing after they were already in an established relationship with someone for a long period of time, or if maybe they just 
started out their dating life, dating multiple people at once. You know, those would be two very different paths. And, you know, what I've seen in my own research on polyamory is that people's experiences, their relationship structures are so diverse. I love in the one study that we did, we kind of asked people to describe the shape of their relationship. You know, we were kind of looking at the geometry of polyamory and you see every kind of shape emerges. You know, you've got V's, you've got triangles, you've got trapezoids and rectangles. I think the most interesting one that a participant described was they said, think of it as an asterisk with a rectangle bolted onto it. And I'm like, wow, that's that's a visual. So like there's this open network, but then there's this sort of closed loop within it. And it's just so interesting the way that, you know, polyamory is something that is very flexible and can take so many different forms. And I think that also makes it kind of challenging to study in some ways, because, you know, when you're starting to talk about things like attachment style and so forth, how that's going to play out in an open network versus in some of these other situations is just going to be drastically different. Oh, yes. Speaking of that, my colleagues and I are trying to launch a study to look at the effect of being in a polycule. And just the idea of trying to capture the ways in which people are drawing kind of their world and polycule, it's taken us over a year to design this survey. (laughs) It's going to be the first of its kind because we want to know, like, all of these different questions that just haven't been answered yet. Like if you're friends with your metamors, so your partner's partners, how does that affect your relationship satisfaction or the different types of agreements? Or if you feel satisfaction with one partner, you know, how does that affect other types of relationships? And looking at what if you and your partner are dating the same person? So all of these different nuances and some of the biggest challenges with the survey is figuring out how do we figure out where polycules start and end? Like, or are they infinite? <laughs> like, yeah. It's very few. I think that there are, of course, people who engage in polyamory that are polyfidelitous and they only have a couple partners and that's it. But most people have, you know, ongoing different partners. And some of those partners might be romantic partners or just sexual partners, or I don't know what's going on. We don't need to label it types of partners. (laughs) These networks can be as complicated and beautiful as how many stars there are in the universe. Yes. But it all just goes back to when you want to start researching this, and you don't have a base to go from, you've got to blaze that trail yourself and figure out how to ask these questions in the right way. And also how to do this in a way that's inclusive of people who are going to have these drastically different relationship structures. So, I mean, that's certainly something I've found to be a challenge in my own work in this area is when I started doing work, there wasn't a lot to draw on in the literature. And so you kind of had to make it up as you went along you learned a lot. (laughs) But one of the things that I found was very helpful and valuable in my research was to get both quantitative and qualitative data. So, you know, we'd ask people various questions, use a lot of standardized inventories, and then we'd give them a follow-up question open-ended to say, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about this particular topic? And that's where we started to see, okay, a lot of these standard measures that people have been using to measure relationship traits and characteristics just don't work so well in these other contexts. And so you've got to kind of go back and remake the mold in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And that is what keeps me up at night. I spend a lot of time (laughs) doing. And, you know, once you see mononormativity, that idea that science is biased, that 
monogamy is a human universal. Like once you see it and like it clicks, you see it everywhere. Like <laughs> uh, there isn't a day goes by that I, I don't see mononormativity, unfortunately. Well, and that leads nicely into my next question, which is, you know, we've addressed a number of negative stereotypes, myths, misconceptions, and assumptions about consensual non-monogamy, which I think brings up the question of where does all that stigma come from in the first place? Why do so many people seem to be convinced that consensual non-monogamy just can't work? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. I think there's a lot of underlying mechanisms for this stigma. I think the most parsimonious explanation is as humans, we really seek out support. We go out of our way to want to feel belonging, to feel included. And so most of us adhere to social norms. That's a really good way to find support, to fit into society, to get appraisal from people near you, your friends, your family, is to you know meet these different milestones. Like be a good citizen, don't speed and go to college and get a good job and marry and have kids and you know pay your taxes on time or whatever. <laughs> and as humans, we really avoid stigmatizing things. Uh, we don't like anticipated rejection. We don't want to be made fun of. We don't want to be bullied. We don't want to be discriminated against. And non-monogamy I think is one of those things that you really make a decision to go against the grain. You're going against the way our society is fundamentally set up. Our society is set up for people to pair bond. Our legal system is set up that way. The institution of marriage, our healthcare system, every layer of our society is set up only for pair bonding. And it is very difficult <laughs> for people to even just remain single. That's a lot of stigma and, you know, denied access to different facets of society like healthcare, like I couldn't put a good friend on my healthcare plan. Then it happens with non-monogamy too. For some people, because it is against a big social norm that is dictated by the law and the institution of marriage, I think that's a big source of stigma as to why people then go and have these misconceptions and they're like, yeah, that's not going to work. And, you know, that's immoral or all of these different things. They must be unfit parents or they must be sex crazed or all of these negative stereotypes. That was spoken like a true social psychologist, you know, in terms of looking oh, at know, conformity right? <laughs> and need fulfillment. Yes. Love the answer. Cause there were so many different ways to answer that question. Thank you, University of Michigan, for my training. <laughs> <laughs> now, the stigma against consensual non-monogamy has real effects. And one of them that we hinted at a little bit in the previous episode is that it can make it difficult to find healthcare providers who can serve you without shaming you. And that can make it harder to get the kind of care that you need, or you might drop out of care because it becomes unpleasant. You know, people don't like to be shamed. So you've done some work specifically in trying to help therapists and other mental health professionals better understand consensual non-monogamy, as well as how to help consumers find therapists who will be affirming. So can you tell us a little bit more about where therapists can go to kind of learn and get more information on this topic? Because I know many of them have not received a lot of training on it. And then separately for the public who might want to find an affirming therapist, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. So I have the great pleasure of co-chairing a committee at the national level with one of my dear friends, Heath Schechinger, who's a clinician by training. And also previous guest on the podcast. Yes. And that I remember that episode. That was uh, July of 2021 for those listening who wants to go back and listen to it. <laughs> um, 
And uh, we co-chair a committee dedicated to providing education, research, and clinical training for people to be affirming of consensual non-monogamy within the American Psychological Association Division 44. And so it's the APA for short. It is the largest professional society for psychologists in the world. And so we have a website, div44cnm.org. And on that, we create evidence-based resources for mental health professionals. So we've created brochures that give a primer, like Non-Monogamy 101, some definitions, some research translated in a very easy-to-read way and digest. We also have resources for people to give to their provider because sometimes you don't want the burden to educate your provider, so you can give them some further reading. All of these materials are you know, free and downloadable on our website. We also had the really good fortune two years ago to be a part of the updated guidelines for affirming care when working with sexual minority persons. And so Heath and I were able to co-author a brand new guideline, meaning this is evidence-based insight from research and tangible strategies that clinicians can implement to be non-judgmental and to be affirming of people practicing consensual non-monogamy. And that's in the newest uh, set of guidelines and specifically guideline nine. And then a big part of my research is to how do we have research basically have legs and make social change in society? And so a few years ago, Heath and I and other members of our committee wrote very persuasive letters to Psychology Today as well as APA to get them to change their therapy directory locators to have a checkbox for consensual non-monogamy, meaning if you're someone who wants to find a therapist who is affirming of non-monogamy, there's now a checkbox that you can click so that you can better match with someone who has that skill set, who feels like they can take on clients. And Psychology Today has the largest therapy directory, I think, in the U.S. And so now for those people who are interested in finding care and affirming care, that is one way to better match and to find a therapist. Yeah. And I think that is such an important tool for people because, you know, it can be hard to know where to go. And just kind of having that initial screener, the ability to say, okay, this person is likely to be affirming of me, that can go a long way toward resolving a lot of anxiety about just, you know, going in for your first visit to begin with. So we appreciate your work and efforts in that area. Now we're running short on time, but I have one last question for you, which builds upon the previous one, which is, you know, whether you think things are changing. So in the years since you started studying consensual non-monogamy, how have you seen things change in the field and in the broader public when it comes to attitudes toward consensual non-monogamy? I feel like things have gotten so much more positive. Like, I'm blown away. I was always going to study non-monogamy. I had a very hard time finding an academic job where I could do this for quite some time because it's really stigmatized. The stigma out in society spills over into science. I've noticed, especially over the last five years, Multiple celebrities are talking openly about their engagement in polyamory and open relationships. And celebrities have so much social capital and power in society to help normalize things that are really stigmatized. I think that that is shifting people's attitudes. I think there's something really unique about Gen Z. So I'm an elder millennial and (laughs) I have the great fortune to teach Gen Z. And 
there is something really beautiful about this cohort of young adults where one out of five of them are identifying as part of the LGBTQ community, where in millennials, that's like seven to 8% are identifying. There's nothing that radically changed in society. Evolution doesn't work that quickly. We didn't, there's nothing in the water. Stigma surrounding diverse expressions of sexuality is decreasing. And so that gives room for people to really question, how do I want to live and navigate my intimate life? And so I'm starting to see students in my class say things to me like, oh, I figured I was polyamorous in high school when I didn't even know what that word was until my mid-20s. And so as stigma decreases, people are going to understand that they have options and that they can remain single or they can practice polyamory or they can swing or they can be monogamous. And all of these options are valid and can be, you know, really beneficial and work well for people. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. Amy Moore's elder millennial. So I appreciate (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate you being here today. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Sure thing. I have a website. It is my name, amycmores.com. I post all of my journal articles for free access when I'm not violating copyright because I don't like there to be a barrier between science and the general public. Um, you can also find me on lots of other podcasts and things. And one day I, in the near future, I really hope to do a TED Talk and maybe you'll see me talk about five misconceptions on the big stage. I would love to see that. Thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 